Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can also find me on every major audio podcatcher and Odyssey as well. Uh, credit to Justin Campbell at jcamp1521 on Twitter for the, uh, the intro. I appreciate that. Uh, today, my guest is Tommy Sands of the Year Zero of Year Zero of the Libertarian Institute as well. Uh, just so you guys know what's going on right now. This is a, a live stream. If you're watching the day of, which is the 10th uh, of March. Uh, it'll only be available for now. It'll be well. It'll go back up public like a week or so later. But uh, uh, you can catch it public, uh, or and if you want in the in between time, you gotta be a patron. Uh, Patreon.com slash No Way Jose twenty twenty. If you want that, uh, the lowest level is two bucks just to get that minimum one uh, to have it like in the in between times between the live stream that's public and when it goes up public later. Um, the highest level is our, the twenty dollar level, which is the sponsors. And uh, with that, I have C D McRae of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast. Jacob Winograd of the Daniel 3 podcast has a little biblical anarchy content. Um, uh, Brandon Smith, uh, his Twitter is at underscore 2D system. He has 2D system uh, on YouTube and Rumble, and he also has music on Spotify and other streaming platforms. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be covering the Voltaire de Claire essay in the Anarchist Handbook. I'm looking forward to it. It's a really good one. Uh, she's This is probably the first, this is the first time I was introduced to her through this, so um Looking forward to going into it. I'm probably, you know, definitely in the future, this will be someone who will be checking out more of their work. Uh, as always, go check out Top Lobster at toplobster.com. Use Jose at checkout for 10% off. I'm wearing Top Lobster shirt right now. Um, the No Way Jose one, you can pick up my content there. You can pick up all sorts of other con or other stuff from other podcasters or even just some of his designs, which are pretty awesome. Uh, with that, let's go and bring Tommy. Hey, what's up, man? What's going on, dude? Hey, uh, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience, for those who aren't familiar with you, and uh, also this series, hopefully, hopefully we'll get a lot of people coming in from different spots to check it out, so uh, yeah, if you just give your intro, I know you've been on before, it's been a while, but... Yeah, it's been a little bit, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm the least best Liberty Trucker on Twitter, and uh, I'm also the host of the Year Zero podcast at the Libertarian Institute, so that's those are my credentials. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, forever ago, whenever I first was looking for people to do for that, you picked Voltaren, declare, and uh, of your own volition. So I knew it rang true to you. And as I read it, I can kind of identify it. Why we're like, oh, I can see why Tommy likes Voltaren. Uh, but so I want to hear from your own mouth, though, uh, why you picked Voltaren, and also kind of like what impact she's had on your thinking and such. Yeah, I, I guess it was about three or four years ago. Sherry Voluntary introduced me to Voltaren, declare. And I, I started, I went, I dug in, like I spent a month just reading everything I could find that she wrote. And she has this one um, essay called Anarchism. And really when you read it, because I mean, because she was writing in the 1900s, they didn't have all the terms that we have now. Uh, but when you're, when you read it and you really break it down, she's really describing what panarchism is. And she's basically saying, I've come from, I've been a collective anarchist. I've been an individual anarchist. I've been all these different branches of anarchism and what I've taken from all of them and put together in my own mind is this kind of panarchist idea that a true anarchist society wouldn't actually have these rules of, well, you have to be a, a communist or, you know, a syndicalist or, you know, anarcho-capitalist, whatever. So you wouldn't fall into the the society within itself wouldn't fall 
individually into any of these camps. It would be a combination of all these different uh, stylistic, you know, developments through the anarchist thinking. And, you know, when I, when I would look, I, I saw like what was going on with Tron and how all that was taking place after they kicked all the politicians and the cartel out of the town. And I was like, yeah, that like what Voltarine like describes is what Tehran is doing. It's just this kind of, it's, it's what you would call a pure voluntarist society where it's just, everything's just kind of intermingling and intertwining and it's all voluntary. And, uh, as I, as I read her art, her essays over, you know, a few months, I found out that her predictions are, are pretty spot on. And she has one in this essay that I, that I really pulled out and was like, yeah, we, we should really point at that, especially right now. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of other than her writing style, I must say, like when I was growing up uh, as a teenager, I was very much into literature. I, I loved like reading Dickens and Kerouac and the, the old literature. I, my dad raised me reading that stuff. And when I read her essays, I was like, wow, this woman has like a real gift when it comes to prose. Yeah. And a lot of it reads like poetry. It's, it's very hilarious. much so. Because, like there's a lot of quotes in this that I recognize from like other anarchist thinkers of like similar sentiments, but put in such a way that's like, much more i don't know graceful or uh i, I don't know it just has a uh, like it, it sticks more it has like a you know like i don't know what what is, i wish actually i almost had one on top of my head that we'll, we'll probably read later like tyrants are active and ardent using uh i'm i, I think they'll recall it perfectly you're looking up one right now aren't you <laughs> yeah my fa it's my favorite one is uh the sin our father sinned was that they did not trust liberty wholly Yes, that. that's a good one. That, yeah. that just, There's so many good I mean, lines. Like yeah. I, I, I take notes when I read these, especially since I'm doing it for the show, or I'll, I'll underline quotes that I like, and it's just like it's just, just chicken scratch all over that. Like that's a sign, you know, <laughs> or an essay where there's just like there's shit all over the page. <laughs> mm. and that's how it is for this. Like there's like, oh, oh, damn, that was a good fucking, that was a good like, you know, thought you strung together in, the, in such a artful way. Like right. I don't know, she is. It's definitely interesting. Um, would you would you be able to briefly describe what her brand of anarchism is? Because I know we like to kind of group each other. I, I got like s sort of like maybe she would consider herself a socialist, maybe not. I, I got different vibes from reading this, but you've read more of her work, so I want to get your yeah. She was um. I would I would say she was at least in in, in let's say modern times. She would be more like a Roderick Long, maybe a Roderick T Long. She, but she's a she, she's a panarchist, um, and and so, as I was saying, she studied all the different avenues of anarchism. She she started off as a collectivist anarchist. They didn't call it anarcho communism or anarcho syndicalism. And as you read her, you find out that you, I, at least for me, it came across more like a syndicalist kind of anarchism in her collectivist thought than a, a communist type but i mean you're splitting hairs at a certain point there especially in early 1900s 
Um, and then she did get into the individualist anarchist side, but what she, what she discovered, like I said, is, is that in an anarchist society, you're not ruling over another person. There's, there's the government, there would be no governing force there to force you into a specified economic system so that there would be all these different branches of anarchism all interacting together. And so you could call her a voluntarist or a panarchist. I, I think I think panarchist is probably the the most apt term for. Yeah, I just know she spoke on property in certain ways. So I, I know some people like our ANCAP brethren uh, would uh, you know kind of take cues from that. I I got kind of like mutualist vibes a little bit, you know, where it's like, yeah, yeah I don't really believe in property, but if you want to claim me a property, I don't care. I wouldn't do anything about it. I so. think I think her I think her issue with the property side of things, from what I've gathered from reading her was that people become beholden to the property instead of the property becoming beholden to the people right so she mm -hmm. has a she has a line in this in here where she talks about property a little bit she didn't talk about it much in this essay yeah. which i don't think there was a call to talk about it much in this essay mm -hmm. But she said, I don't um, think it was a big deal for her. I don't think it was like a crucial issue. Yeah, it wasn't a make or break yeah. point for her. But she said, um, when once by an act of general expropriation, they have overcome the reverence and fear of property and their awe of government, they may waken to the consciousness that things are to be used and therefore men are greater than things. This may rouse the spirit of liberty. So she's not saying that property is evil. She's like, she's saying that serving that property is evil, right? She's yeah. like, what what kills you, and, and this ties back into her argument about commerce and manufacturing and like basically industrialism altogether, which she spends a great deal of time kind of taking, I don't know if you've ever read any of the Jeffersonian Hamilton debates about um, agrarian society versus industrial society. But as you could guess, Hamilton was very much an industrialist. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so she spends a lot of time in this article, like really propping up, uh, Jefferson and, and, and showing very, very great respect for, for Jefferson's thought. Mm. Um, and, and so I think you kind of get, an idea of you can kind of take from that that she would see property for more of an agrarian aspect so yeah. it would be more like a homesteaders type aspect mm. and i i think that's I, I that's pretty much how i view my property right mm. like my property i put my property to use to survive on to to uh create for my family and yes, I will defend my property with violence, but it's not because I live to serve my property. It's because I utilize that property as a resource to serve me. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you did touch on something too that uh, I wanted to mention now because it may not come up naturally in, in conversation, but it was weird how this essay in a lot of way, ways is almost like a beautiful ode to Jefferson. Like mm. they were like she, she weaved quotes in and out of this essay and it was kind of beautiful how she kind of showed his thoughts on the matter. And obviously he ended up falling on the minarchy or, or minarchist constitutionalist side of things. And she kind of showed through what things that he said, that how it kind of got proved that like, that was his one error. Like he was right in everything except for that one little thing of like, 
you know, like, no, like if you, if you give even a, a little inch to government, they're going to take it all uh, based on some of his quotes. Like I know there was that quote that was basically Jefferson on his deathbed that she has in there. That was really good. Uh, I wish I, yeah. I we'll probably get to it, but I'll remember off the top of my head. But that he said something along the lines of like basically this shit's fucked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, I think that was Franklin. I think that was yeah. Benjamin Franklin. Quote. Oh, was that? Maybe it was. Okay, there was yeah, a lot of Jefferson quotes. So yeah, there was a lot of Jefferson quotes. But I, I think, I think what she was doing, I think it was actually a brilliant move. Was is I mean, it was a it was a Scott Horton move. Attack the right from the right, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I guess we can kind of dig in but i will say that the one quote that she left off that jefferson uh uh one quote of jefferson's that i i've used as an anarchist in that i thought she should have used in in this essay was the the quote and i'm i'm gonna paraphrase because i don't remember the exact wording of it but he said something along the lines that i would prefer the inconveniences of too little government than the inconveniences of too much government and so that's, I, I think reading the kind of the tone of this essay, she was targeting a specific type of person, right? And by using Jefferson's words to show that, look, even he says that anarchy is better than what we're viewing now may have been, you know, given her a little bit of oomph at the end, but well, I mean, no, that's the just whole personal yeah. taste thing. The whole hypothesis of this essay is basically the idea that anarchism is as American as American can be. So obviously, one can deduce the target audience is those that identify themselves greatly with their country in this regard, like, you know, Americans. So people who see and identify that with a rich tradition. And she goes into, and we'll get into it as we get through the essay, uh, you know, she kind of breaks down like tradition versus what has actually become. Like, because there is this like, as Americans, even... You know, I know a lot of us like to be like, you know, oh, we're super anarchists and we don't have this propaganda built into us or whatever. Uh, but mm. there is some positive aspect of some of this propaganda that gets brought up, this idea of freedom that we get inculcated with as Americans. Uh, and then it just gets perverted by the uh, the government as time goes on to where well, as she said flips, the, the attorney. I thought so that was one of the I thought that was one of the most brilliant things she wrote in the whole essay. It was like she was kind of tapping into Spooner here for a minute where she's basically saying that the constitution was a mistake. She says something along the lines that as soon as you put a declaration on paper, attorneys line up to redefine and redefine and redefine the words until freedom is defined out of existence. Yeah. No, the, uh, the free speech quote she makes. Yeah. That's what it yeah. is. It's like, you uh, make no laws concerning speech. I'm roughly paraphrasing. And, uh, and, uh, you know, cause as soon as you do essentially, yes, they, the lawyers will come in to find it away out of existence. So, well, I think she was using, I think she was using speech just kind of as an example. I yes, think she yes. was just talking in general, like when, once you put it on paper, like then you, then people can pick it apart, you know, mm -hmm. well, this word actually means this. And this word actually means that. And, you know, mm -hmm. this gets into like what Orwell was talking about in that 1946 essay politics in the English language. Yeah. where he's just completely demeaning the the way that politics have come have like neutered language altogether yeah this is how you can tell this is a, a good essay because before we we're actually like starting to dig into it dig into it 
were already like chomping at the bit to get into some of the <laughs> things, you know uh but i, I want to start out because let's we're gonna start getting into it i'm gonna kind of go in a sort of chronological order of the concepts that were going on here but i wanted to read malice's uh, little intro because it's a pretty good uh you know summation of kind of what's going on here in this essay uh this is from malice so more popular with the unwashed mashes, masses than with true blue Americans. In the 19th and early 20th century, the anarchist idea was often caricatured as an invasive foreign ideology. Valterine de Clare took pains to explain that anarchism and a hatred of the state is in fact far more American and had far more of a tradition on American soil than most ideas that were being bandied about in her time. In 1765, over a decade before the Declaration of Independence, Patrick Henry the guy who said, give me liberty or give me death, stood up in the Virginia House of Burgesses and basically said that King George was asking to be shot and concluded with, if this be treason, make the most of it. Here, Declare makes the case that anarchism is more American than that foreign dessert apple pie. Uh, and yeah, that's a, we did a good job of summing up what's going on in this one. <laughs> so Yeah, and, and you wouldn't be shocked to find out that Patrick Henry is one of my favorite uh, founders. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's pretty dope. Yeah, read re his, his uh his biography. There's a biography called Lion of Liberty about him. It's really good, really good. Mm -hmm. Sorry, uh, just kind of a know, side note there. <laughs> when she starts out this essay going into the concept of American tradition and like what it was born out of, um, you know, she says American traditions begotten of re religious rebellion, self small self-sustaining communities, isolated conditions. And hard pioneer life grew during the colonization period of 170 years from the settling of Jamestown to the outburst of the revolution. And she's already setting in the frame of the idea the type of people that were the spirit that began what is, you know, the American experience essentially. And mm -hmm. I do think it's important to remember that. And she ties that back into how that is a conducive atmosphere for liberty. And if we can, sure. and she kind of circles back into it later in the, in the essay of kind of the idea of sort of getting back to that, you know. Um, but well, and she, she does that in this essay that I thought was really interesting, which I was talking to my wife about before we came on was she, she lays out the conclusion prior to the explanation. Mm -hmm. So when you're reading it, you're, you read, and then you're reading about education, then you're reading about commerce, then you're reading about, you know, um, the, the standing armies, and then then she ex expropriates on it and just tears it apart and just like, like expands on every subject after that. So it's like the mm -hmm. summary comes before the essay, which is, which is an interesting way of doing it, but it really hooks you in because it's kind of quick and, and getting through those points really fast. And by the time you're pulled in and you start really digging into it, then you're like, Oh, okay. I see what she's saying here. And yeah, I found it interesting at the beginning of the essay, I think starting in the second paragraph, she was actually writing from another point of view, which I don't know if you caught onto that, which, no, but no. I found it, she, she's, she's writing from the state, the, the like patriotic American point of view. She starts no. writing from this patriotic American point of view and she's talking about the education system right oh and yeah so, i actually you know what i did catch that i just didn't yeah that, uh, and then and then she, and then she comes back a couple of paragraphs later and she's like but what the anarchists would say is yeah. but yeah, she no, writes yeah, it in yeah. such a way that it's like oh yeah that's like actually a really interesting point and then she's mm -hmm. like 
But <laughs> yeah, no, that's an education example. We'll get to that because that's actually a good example. I get what you're saying because she lays out, and we'll get into that the idea of why. Well, you know what? You guys had a good point with why you wanted to do this, and like, yes. like the first little block of what caused the shit saying that is what is now America, and that's kind of what she's hinting at. Like, this was the first little ground you seeded, and see what happened. Like that, and but she was like, and you guys had a good point, but you didn't take this into account, and that's kind of what she gets into. You know. Right, um, right. And then, okay, now now we get into, she starts characterizing the revolution and kind of goes into the idea of kind of setting the stage of what a revolution is and kind of, because this does have significance in the concept of what she's building towards here. This kind of like consciousness of what being an American is to some extent, you know. Um, I'm going to read the first paragraph when she gets into that section because that one's actually like really good. Um, and kind of, yeah, and kind of explains what she like. It kind of touches on how we were talking about earlier, how she puts it in a beautiful way. The revolution is a sudden and unified consciousness of these traditions. Their loud assertion, the blow dealt by their indomitable will against the counterforce of tyranny, which is never entirely recovered from the blow, but from which, uh, but which from then till now has gone on remolding and regrappling the instruments of government power that the revolution sought to shape and hold his defenses of liberty. And she's kind of just, you know, characterizing the revolution as this idea of like, everyone realized basically this shit is fucked. And she'll get into later how like people kind of broke that down different ways, but people desired liberty. There was this genuine, she's saying here that the genuine desire of the revolution was liberty. And, you know, obviously we'll get into how different people have different ideas of that. And, you know, because she's obviously advocating for anarchy and that's not exactly what happened, but she's kind of making the point that, that this was born out of that desire, the similar desire for liberty. Yeah. But she's also showing some frustration here. Like mm-hmm. she's, she's showing that there's, there's a frustration behind these words. Like she's trying to ignite something. She's trying to rekindle that, that American spirit. And yeah, no, we, what you and I, and this was something I was telling you, I was like, man, I might, I might have like a bone to pick about this. And then I was like, I reread it and I was like, oh no, because like when you put it into context through the whole thing, what we see now looking back in 1909, when she wrote this essay is that this was the beginning of the progressive era. So she was feeling all of this movement, kind of like what we're feeling today, this, this movement, like there's something like, this is frustrating. This is irritating. Like I can't quite, figure out how to combat what it is I'm not truly aware of. And, and so she's feeling that and without the benefit of the internet and all this knowledge all over the place. And, um, and so she's, she's trying to grab a hold of an old principle and, and pull it into modern times because modern times for her feel out of control. Yeah. No, and I do like how, I mean, there's definitely more we can pick at here, but there's just so much in here. I highly suggest anyone listening to this, if you haven't read it, go read it because we're going to leave out so much rich shit and just try <laughs> to cover the basics. Because even just like, even she's making beautiful points, even within like what is a minor point, <laughs> you know? And she, she kind of leads this up to kind of getting into how uh, the, the revolution was desire for liberty and it kind of broke up into two people like basically the minarchy versus anarchy type of a breakdown like thus they took their starting point for deriving a minimum of government upon the same sociological ground that the modern anarchist derives the no government theory 
And so she's kind of getting at that, you know, everyone des- desired liberty, but the minarchists obviously were like, well, we, we got to have something. And, you right. know, you know, they, they had the idea that a minimum government would be okay. And that, that right. was kind of their concept. And she starts leading to that a little bit. Um, well, there's this, there's this paragraph here that, that a- adds on to what you're just saying. And I love the way that she wrote this. She said, among the fundamental likeness between the revolutionary Republicans and the anarchists is the recognition that the little must precede the great, that the local must be the basis of the general, that there can be a free federation only when there are free communities to federate, that the spirit of the latter is carried into the councils of the former, and a local tyranny may may thus become an instrument for general enslavement. Yeah. (laughs) No, that is a good one. She's truly... Again, like I said, she's really getting into this this Jefferson Hamilton debate, the agrarian, the the localized culture versus the industrialized culture. So it's I, I when I was reading this, I actually kind of chuckled and I was like, imagine Michael Malice, a city dweller, picking this as a damn essay. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because because it's really just what she's slinging mud at anybody who lives that exuberant life, that, that over the top life. And she does it continuously throughout this entire essay. Yeah. But I mean, you know, credit to malice. I mean, I don't know to what extent he agrees with this or not. Maybe he does. And just a different take on that, but it, it is funny. Cause it is like we kind of touched on earlier, the kind of people that they're, they're pushing for is, is kind of to some extent. Yeah, there is, you do me wrong. There, I'm sure there are city dwellers that have this, like, you know, uh, you know, homegrown apple pie American feeling within them. But there's something about. I mean, I guess I'm also speaking from experience of someone who grew up in the country. I feel like it's stronger in the country. I don't know yeah. what it is about it, but I think maybe it's because you all you do feel more tied to the land when you're in mm-hmm. a rural area, and it's like, you know, here's my you know my neighbor who has his cattle, and there's this, and it's like it. The, the land you're much more in tune with the land so you mm. do have this like almost bond with it whereas in a city it's just uh, i mean yeah you kind of do but i feel like that's a different experience so it, it does kind of make sense that, that like they take this this thing that you know that especially the rural people have this feeling with the land and then they conflate that with the government and right. there there's definitely something to that there where that's why you you know it's it's the common stereotype that the bubbles that go off to join the military and you know, go kill the enemy because they think they're fighting for their land, their country. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, but it's something a little different there, pal, where it's, yeah. I mean, you know, so there's something to that. Yeah. And she mm-hmm. points out, she, she, she also points out later on that these are the pioneer types, the, those that just want to be left alone, you know, like the, those are the, the most anarchist. Yeah. Um, and I like how she kind of then leads into like I actually wrote in my notes, so it begins. And she literally points out the first example, literally 1776, where they started to uh, arrange for public education. At this point, though, she this is kind of what you were getting at early. She was actually still making the case like, OK, uh, all right. Well, you know, you have a good point here. She kind of leads into, you know, like why they would you know, even think that way. Kind of like, mm. well, you know, it makes sense. You want a common education, blah, blah, blah. You know, you want to. Uh, you want to have a, a history, uh, like, let me see, here's a good one. Like, it was the intention this, of the revolution. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the first line when she first starts really getting into it, to inculcate this proud spirit of the supremacy 
of the people over their governors was to be the purpose of public education. You know? Yes. And, and she's really talking from the people's point of view. Like, yeah, I do want to make a note real quick, and these will be essential points that she kind of gets into uh, later, uh, but it's not really super important. The point she points out education, commerce, manufacture, and those are concepts she uses within these because those kind of trip me up to kind of get what she was talking about at first. But she's obviously education is pretty uh, explanatory. Commerce, like she describes these as like forces that are, are, are uh, acting. Uh, it's kind of how she's using them in the essay. So just for context, as we go throughout this, for those listening. Uh, but yeah, no, it was definitely something the way she was pointing out, like how common education, why it was put in place. The, the, she was making the argument that, okay, you guys had a good, like she was giving them a, a you know, straw or steel manning their position of like, okay, you guys saw you had this horrible government that was upon you and all right, we're going to make another government. And the only thing we're really going to, the very at 1776 one the only one of the very 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 few things we're going to do is education and right you know why it's it's because we're going to teach them to not let this ever happen again like yeah we're gonna, they, it, this is how we continue the revolution this is how yes. as marx would say you have to continue the, the revolution never ends yeah that's a good way to put it really yeah um all right and then she starts going into the results of it uh, let me see if I can find where that's it. I got example, it right here if you want me oh, to. Go ahead. Yeah, if you got one ready, yeah. Yeah, she just says, on the contrary, from cover to cover, you will find nothing but the cheapest sort of patriotism, the inculcation of the most unquestioning acquiescence in the deeds of government, a lullaby of rest, security, confidence, the doctrine that the law can do no wrong, a te diem, in praise of the continuous encroachments of the powers of the general government upon the reserved rights of the states, shameless falsification of all acts of rebellion, to put the government in the right and the rebels in the wrong, pyrotechnic glorifications of union, power, and force, and a complete ignoring of the essential liberties to maintain which was the purpose of the revolutionists. <laughs> Yeah, she, uh, she definitely. So this is, you thought this was what education was going to be, but this is what education is. Yes. You know, it turned it it turned into an assembly line of pushing out good little citizens to act on behest of the mighty government. Yeah, and she can just count. Oh, no, I was just going to say. There's that old saying. It just kind of reminded me of that old saying that. Uh, Oh, what, what, how's it go? Um, cons yesterday's revolutionaries are today's conservatives. Is that, mm. yeah, that, that's kind of what, what she's getting at here. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. And she does go beat, beating that drum. She goes on that for a good page or so about different examples of such. But then she kind of gets to why this is. She gets into the essence of government. And she goes, I have already said, is a thing apart, developing its own interests at the expense of what opposes it, all attempts to make it anything else fail. In this, anarchists agree with the traditional enemies of the revolution, the monarchists, federalists, strong government believers, the Roosevelts of today. And I like that because she right here is basically like, okay, now we can narrow this down to, I already kind of sort of pointed out how the minarchists are dumb and they're wrong. Uh, and now, mm -hmm. all right, anarchists, monarchists, now by, by this new idea of this is what government is and you can't avoid it, 
the, the, the anarchists and the monarchists is the only, you know, now from the powers of deduction, I mean, we've gotten to this point, anarchists and monarchists are the only ones who really have something going on. And she kind of uses, uh, was it Hamilton, I believe, to, in, in the juxtaposition of uh, Jefferson in this section to kind of point out kind of like, you know, well, Hamilton was kind of right to some extent, or more right at least than the uh, traditional constitutionalists. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and she, I mean, if you if you read her um, her argument when we get to commerce and manufacturing very closely, she's she's still hammering on Hamilton. She's still saying like because she's saying Ham- Hamilton was a logical actor, yes. right? He he was a monarchist. He believed in a monarchy. He wanted the United States just to set up a separate monarchy. And if you understand his train of thought, he was acting in the interest of the state whenever he was adhering to industrialism or central banking, these things, because it was to empower the state. That was his goal was to empower the state for a monarchical society, whereas Jefferson was an agrarian. He believed in an agrarian society. So he wanted the people, and she even said she even made a comment that an agrarian society was the original manifest destiny of the United States. This was before the Hamiltonian kind of thought process took hold. Yeah. And it, uh, you did kind of touch on uh, that. She brings him as a logical actor, but I think the next point she goes into the essence of human nature. And I think this is her further breaking down, you know, the proper way to go being anarchy. And she kind of, I think this is her, this is, this is her, subtly it's not too i think pointing out where the monarchists are wrong but then she does kind of tie this into back into kind of the spirit of 76 and such she goes it's the essence of human nature where national experience is made plain as this that to remain in a continually exalted moral condition is not human nature that that has happened which was prophesied we have gone downhill from the revolution until now. We are absorbed in mere money getting. So, just, so I think that line about the moral, uh, uh, exalted moral condition was kind of the dig at monarchy. I think a little bit is what I read from that. Well, it, it's also kind of, it's also a and because she mentions the money getting at the at yes. the same time. So, so it's also a dig at the commerce and the manufacturing. It's also yes. a dig at industrialism. And I have a Which, note here. I, I took. I was like reading this, like one of the, one of the main takeaways, especially when I got into this section, freedom is a muscle consumption and uh, is a distraction that causes that muscle to atrophy. Mm. You know, you brought up the manifest destiny. That was actually the next section I was going to hit on. She kind of brings it back to that. Oh yeah. I'm sorry, man. Like you're saying, no, no, you're good. You're good. No, no, no. Yeah, you gave me a perfect little uh, segue. <laughs> uh, but yeah, now we're talking about how, yeah, they were agricultural people. We shall be virtuous as long as agriculture is our principal object, which will be the case as long as there remain vacant lands in any part of America. When we get piled upon one another in large cities as in Europe, we shall become corrupt as in Europe and go to eating one another as they do there. Um, yeah, which, I mean, I know this is the agrarian versus like cosmopolitan or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. but I. I mean, maybe I'm not able to give like a, a very strong, you know, like perfect argument of why, but there is something to, there's just something about more freedom. And I guess maybe it's just a matter of there's less, there's more space between humans. And once you start grouping up humans, it creates more opportunities for 
authoritarianism, but I don't know about you, but like I love being in the country. I can I can be driving out in the country and be no one around, and it's like to some extent this you look around and like this is literally freedom. Like yeah. there's you know like there we're like literally I'm somewhere where there's no one even can even see anyone, and it's just just pure country. Like that's pure freedom in its purest form. Which I guess is kind of a weird form of individualism because you're saying like you gotta get rid of all their humans, but it's not as simple as that. There's something to the country, to, to some extent. I think there's something just more free about it. Uh, I mean, I, I you know it's hard to quantify, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, as you said, there there's obvious reasons that I really like this the way she writes, and this is one of them. And this is the main part of the essay that really touched my soul is because of the way I've set up my life. I mean, I, I live on nine acres. I have a stocked pond. I have chickens. I have, I have a greenhouse. I grow my, I grow a lot of food, you know, not everything I eat, but a lot of it. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be growing more this year than I grew last year, you know? And yeah, I, I have less dependence. Uh, I'm, I'm less dependent on the amount of dollars that I bring in. I'm less dependent on, you know, the gas prices. I mean, I mean, I still worry about it. It's still a concern, but I, I have less dependence because I'm more free. I've, I've created, I've insulated myself to a degree that I'm more free. And, and that's the argument she's making. She's, she's saying this, this kind of agrarian society, this pioneering society, this culture of I'll leave you alone. You leave me alone. It's all about there's a self-sufficiency involved. There's also community involved. Mm. No one's, you know, uh, a completely atomistic individual that's just, you know, acting on their own, you know, of unless you want to become Ted Kaczynski, um, that's just not the way to go. It, it could drive you crazy. Solitude is not good for humans. I mean, we're tribal, but you're she's, she's making an argument, you know, kind of throughout this, this section. And I think throughout this entire essay for, you know, like the Hoppe 10,000 Lichtensteins kind of argument where you yes. break everything down to the smallest possible unit. And, and then, you know, whether it's a family tribe or a community, a, a chosen community, a volunteerist community, whatever, that's what you're looking at. That's, that's how, how you're operating. That's where you're operating within. But you don't want it to be this gargantuan thing because then you have too many competing interests stacking on top of each other, and that will usher in tyranny eventually because then might makes right, and whoever's the strongest is going to prevail in that situation. Whereas when you have space, like in the space I'm in, I mean, I know my neighbors, but I see them once every three to six months. I mean, they're not extremely far away, but I don't just, I don't communicate with them all the time. I'm not on top of them all the time. We're not tripping over each other, trying to get to our cars outside of the apartment or something like that. And I've lived in, in cities. I lived in Houston for years and I've worked for over a decade to get in the situation I'm in now because I knew that was not healthy. It was just, I got to get out of this. Yes. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, maybe it's just an individual thing. Cause I'm of the same thought. Like 
I've been in, uh, I've done in, but definitely been in more closing locations, more. But something about like the more farther away I get from people, in a weird way too, it's like I almost feel like I have a better relationship. Say, I used to live in an apartment when me and my wife first got together like a decade ago. We had an apartment, we had a couple kids, so we were in an apartment complex, and like we had neighbors, and we would see, we saw them far more regularly than I see my current neighbors now, living on two acres. And I live in an area where uh, they have everything deeded out, so everyone has over an acre, an acre or more. So mm-hmm. it's like everyone with some land. So it's that kind of like area. And uh, like, I don't know, I feel like my relationships with my current uh, neighbors is far better than my relationships I have with when I had more of them and we were more closely together. And I feel like I could actually rely on my neighbors here for something, even though we don't really have a friend relationship like that. But there's this relationship of like, we're around each other. My, my neighbor across the street, if he's out of town, he'll be like, hey, can you keep an eye on my property? Like he's had, like, he'll give me a call and we don't, we aren't friends in any way. Like we're just, you know, we live next to each other and we understand that role. Uh, and it's not that we're like, we go and drink beers together, but he'll be like, Hey, uh, something just tripped my security line. Can you go over there and make sure, you know, can you go check it out and shit like that. And it's like, there's something to being in the country. There's a different relationship or when you're further away from people, there's like a different relationship with each other. Uh, it's well, like, we don't have to be friends, but we're, we're living in the same area and we have more of a stewardship over the area. I mean, I think Austrian economics can explain this portion Mm -hmm. pretty well because the more of something you have, the less it's worth, right? Mm -hmm. Like oxygen's free for a reason, you know? And so the, you, 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 there's less value put on a human life when there's 5 million human lives around you. It's like just another ant in a pile, you know? And so when there's, when, when you have that space, you, you begin to appreciate your interactions a little bit more because you're not forced into those interactions now. Yes, for sure. All right. And then she kind of leads us into, uh, and you know, you actually brought the point of like localism. Uh, and I guess I'll read this quote before I get into my point I was about to bring up. But if ever this vast country is brought up under, brought under a single government, it'll be one of the most extensive corruption and different and capable of a wholesome care over so wide a spread of surface. And then she kind of leads that in to bring up America. And she goes, uh, go, you know, I'll read the whole thing. There is not upon the face of the earth today a government so utterly and shamelessly corrupt as that of the United States of America. There are others more cruel, more tyrannical, more devastating. But there is none so utterly venal. And by the way, venal for, I had to look it up too for those of you listening. It's, it means susceptible to bribery. So, you know, corrupt. Um, and she definitely, you know, that still holds true to this day. You know, the idea of that we became under a single government and there's something to it, you know, became what it is now. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Otherwise we'll move into the constitution portion because she starts bringing up, uh, how the constitution, basically she starts making out how the constitution was made and it was because of the demands of commerce. Kind of want to get your opinion on this. I don't remember this argument, but I've heard this before of how the constitution was a thing of commerce. And I remember reading an Albert J. Nock, uh, uh, Our Enemy to State. I don't know if you recall the argument there, because I know he mm-hmm. went more into detail that of how the Constitution was a tool of commerce, essentially, in, in, to begin with. Well, I think I think like the main argument, and I don't remember that book very well because it's been a few years since I've read it. It's just um, the only other place I can recall that argument being made. Yeah, so, I, I do remember it was it was made there, but I think the main argument is when you. <laughs> what what it was it, i don't even know if it was necessarily i mean it was commerce to to uh, to a certain degree because it was it was the hamiltonian view right 
So if you look at the Articles of Confederation was the people ruling, the the Constitution authorized government powers. The, the Articles of Confederation, like a lot of people try to say that the Constitution limits the government powers, but it also enumerates their powers, all right? So you were, you were specifically stating that the government has power that people don't have, right? And the Articles of Confederation did not go that far. And so, mm-hmm. so when they're, when they're saying, when they're talking commerce, I think they're really getting back into, and I think, uh, it was, what was, uh, what's that Rothbard series where he's writing about the founding of the country? I can't remember the name of it. Off can the top see of my head. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So in, in that series, he talks about how every, uh, every colony that was under British control was a mercantilist colony right it was the the governor was appointed by the the king of england based upon uh their corporate status and their status in running mercantilist you know uh unions and and and, and companies and so m- most of the population that was coming into the us under this system didn't own didn't own the land that they lived on they were actually employed or uh put into servitude under the mercantilist system for a certain specific amount of time and then they were oh, after i don't know seven ten years i can't remember exactly what it was they were awarded like 50 acres or something after that so they were working for a, a a major commerce system in order to get the to to acquire a certain amount of freedom and that's kind of what the constitution was doing it was reestablishing this which is why you have stuff like the commerce clause and stuff like that in it because it was reestablishing the the central the general government's control over the people and over the commerce and over you know, and, and this is what gave them the right to tax and, and things like that. So they their argument in the beginning was that the general government under the Articles of Confederation were too weak and it like and it couldn't it couldn't function. It couldn't self-sustain under the Articles of Confederation. So you had to have a coup in which you ushered in this constitution in order to give that general government more power in order to sustain itself. That makes sense. Uh, and also, I, as you were saying that, I couldn't help but think that, like, I guess we don't think of it in that context of that, like, the way that the transition from that to that. And it kind of makes you, while I still don't agree with, like, the anarcho-socialists and the anarcho-communists, it kind of makes you, like, see their point a little bit better because mm. from their perspective, it was still a lot of these these things these these what are supposedly private were kind of owned by previously public actors and such so you can kind of see the confusion of especially you know because we see it now in our current context it's 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 a lot a lot easier to justify it when you put in historical context some of the anarcho-socialists and communists and such you know yeah and it 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 is amazing reading an essay like this where we can take so much out of it and and apply it to our lives and kind of see 
how these things have evolved since she wrote the the essay and it was like she was spot on you know talking about the standing army she was spot on talking about all these things but but at the same time she could have she was imagining that this world too when she's writing like in her conclusion i'm sure we'll get to the conclusion she's talking about what we're experiencing today yeah um and, and to touch on the constitution thing she kind of perfectly segues us into the next main point about the whole she goes along to like tradition versus practice like the american tradition and what we endeavored for you know the spirit of liberty what we wanted and what became of it but she kind of segues the constitution point to that in vain they endeavored to set bounds upon which the federal government dare not trench. In vain they enacted into general law the freedom of speech of the press, of assemblage, and petition. All of these things we see written roughshod upon every day and have seen so and have so seen with more or less intermission since the beginning of the 19th century. At this day, every police lieutenant considers himself, and rightly so, is more powerful than the general law of the Union. And that one who told Robert Hunter that he held in his fist something strong of the Constitution, the Constitution was perfectly correct. The right of the assemblage is an American tradition which has gone out of fashion. The police club is now the mode. It is so in virtue of the people's indifference to liberty and the steady progress of constitutional interpretation towards the substance of imperial government. I, I read that whole thing just because you put it so well there. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> And it, it really does. I read that and I can't help but think of it in modern context. Yeah. Like the police club is now the mode. I know our types like to kind of scoff a little bit some of the George Floyd stuff, but there definitely was, you know, some of the worst, you know, riots were definitely resultant of the police escalating things by, you know, and how they acted. Uh, and right. don't get me wrong, there definitely were bad actors and that became a shit show by the end of it. But there was definitely something to that, you know? So. Yeah, well, and you, and you can see how that how that problem that she was identifying at this time, which may have been a very minor problem at that time, but she may have been seeing it and saying, "Wait, this is this is getting out of hand. Why does why does why does a police lieutenant have more power than the law?" You know, like like hold on, like and so and then we have laws on the books now, you know, where police don't even get prosecuted. You know, yeah. so. And and this is a this has always been a big argument for anarchists, as far as I can remember, is like if 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 I don't have the right to shoot Daniel Shaver for touching his waistband, what gives a cop a right to shoot Daniel Shaver for touching his waistband? Like so next time somebody comes to my house and I don't want him here and they touch their waistband, I can just shoot them. I mean it's good to know. If you're going to set precedent, <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, and this is where she starts going into the tradition versus uh, the, 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 like, the actual practice. Like, uh, in, it's an American tradition that standing army is a standing menace to liberty. Uh, in Jefferson's presidency, the army was reduced to 3,000 men. Is American tradition that we keep out of the affairs of other nations. Is American practice that we meddle with affairs of everybody else from the West to the East Indies, from Russia to Japan. And to do it, we have a standing army of 83,251 men. And, uh, I mean, that's just the first point in this many multiple points of tradition versus practice. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, especially in light of the Russia shit going on right now, it's, it's, it's very prescient. <laughs> yeah, well, and she, uh, she made a point to um, earlier 
in this essay, she made a point to put this Jeffersonian quote, which actually touches on this. The spirit of the times may alter, will alter. Our rulers will become more corrupt. Our people careless. A single zealot may be persecutor and better men be his victims. You know, and so she's talking about this, this expansionism and, and how the power consolidates. And she's continuously hammering on this power. Even when in this other Jefferson quote, let the general government be reduced to foreign concerns only and let our affairs be disentangled <clears throat> from those of all other nations, except as to commerce, which the merchants will manage for themselves and the general government may be reduced to a very simple organization and a very inexpensive one, a few plain duties to be performed by a few servants. Again, that, that complete expansionism over, you know, the, what came to be known as the manifest destiny, now what she was calling the manifest destiny earlier. And, you know, this was, um, I mean, I cannot remember which book it was I was reading a while back. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but the guy was making an argument that the Manifest Destiny expansion to California enriched the United States to such a degree that it once it was complete, it the 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 finances of the country stagnated. And they wanted that boom again. The government wanted that boom because that boom ultimately gave them more power because it gave them more resources at their disposal. And in order to continue the manifest destiny, then you had the Monroe Doctrine in which the U.S. was basically like, okay, just don't come over to South America and start jacking around. We'll leave you alone over there in Europe. But then that wasn't good enough because eventually those resources kind of dried up and everything kind of stagnated. So then they started going over into the Middle East, you know, and into Russia and, you know, with World War II and getting involved in all these, these different war, wars in Vietnam and all this. And, and this is just an, an evolution of manifest destiny. Yeah. I mean, it made me think of the boom bust cycle when you brought that up. The, uh, like, this is what governments do, this is in their nature. And they're going to extend and obviously there'll be collapses extend and they'll just keep pushing further until they can't push anymore and eventually right. you know something happens you know a revolution or whatever uh but yeah i mean it totally makes sense we put into a government and we tried to restrain it to the most extent possible and even then little by little slowly extended like you know further and further and further and you know now we're at the point where we're on the brink of you know, possible World War Three. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, uh, it's the ratchet ready? effect. Yeah. 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 I, I do want to finish out on uh, the tradition versus practice part. I'll read this one. I, she didn't say who said it. I don't know. I, I this is one I brought up earlier that I thought maybe it was Jefferson. She doesn't say who it was, but uh, uh maybe it was uh, Franklin. I'm not sure. Uh, but she kind of uses it to kind of point out like the oh the one where I I hope that I'm not alive when all that happens because <laughs> I regret that I am now to die in the belief that the useless sacrifices of themselves by the generation of '76 to acquire self government and happiness to their country is to be thrown away by the unwise and unworthy passions of their sons and that my only consolation is to be that I shall not live to see it. 
actually do think it's Jefferson. I think I actually looked that up, but I might be wrong. Uh, that might be Jefferson. I'm, I'm looking it up right now because I thought it was Franklin, but everything Literally. gets attributed to Franklin, so who knows? <laughs> well, maybe I attribute it to Jefferson because in the previous text before that, she says Jefferson and says, the Constitution is a mere thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary, which they may twist and shape in any form they please. Yeah, I, maybe that was just, I don't know. But yeah, either way, the point is getting out. She's kind of alluding it was some sort of founder. And that, like this was someone who kind of had this belief that it would work out and then now is like, well, fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. And, uh, you know. Right here it says um, the library of congress.gov says it was Thomas Jefferson to John Holmes in a letter. So, yeah, you're right. correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, but yeah, which it can, it kind of makes sense to kind of how the arc of the quotes of Jefferson throughout this essay, and then she kind yeah. of finishes off on that. Like he's kind of like, well, he had the right idea, but he made a he he, he overlooked a few details. So, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then she goes into what anarchy has to say to the has to say to this. And I, this is one of the sections I have a ton outlined because this was really good. And you brought the, the line earlier. We say this, the sin of our father's sin was that they did not trust liberty wholly. They thought it possible to compromise between liberty and government, believing the latter to be a necessary evil. And the moment the compromise was made, the whole misbegotten monster of our present tyranny began to grow. Instruments which are set up to safeguard rights became the very whip with which the free are struck. So that last line is a point we've gone on a little bit, but that is one line that cannot be repeated enough. Like, I know the idea, like, we say, like, the Bill of Rights, like, you know, these are our freedoms, and, you know, you can't fuck with these. It's like, okay, but the very fact you put these into writing, you know, to be to be argued about is now you're fucked. Now like, they're going to be scrutinized. Now they're yes. going if, to, if, if they were just, and see, but here, here's a question I have about this, because I get where she's coming from, and I, I, I completely and wholly understand, but then you look at someplace like, like, uh, England or Canada that do not have these rights enumerated, you know, under a bill of rights and they're in no better shape. You know, So I'm like, maybe, maybe you're fucked either way. If you turn to it, like a, a general government for your solutions. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's kind of her point is that anarchy's the way, I mean, I, I think she's kind of pointing out the folly that will, uh, will put these things I mean, well, I, I guess, she's specifically talking to Americans in this yes. essay as well. And, so. and to to speak more broadly, I guess the point would be that, like, you know, I mean, whether, you know, if you have a government, you, you know, you doesn't have any rules whatsoever like that, then, yeah, you're fucked, too. But I guess there's definitely an argument made you're a little less fucked here. But, you know, like, either way, she's kind of like, well, you're still fucked. So, like, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, like I said, it gives them the ammunition to scrutinize the words and to redefine the words and to neuter all definition of the words. And then racism becomes something mm -hmm. completely different. And, you know, and then and then when one of their people violates the new code of racism, they just change the definition again. And, you know, it's so mm -hmm. and we, we see all this stuff happening. Yeah, no, this is a line I, I, I tried to sort of paraphrase the phrase earlier as you Make no laws, whatever, concerning speech, and speech will be free. So as soon as you make a declaration on paper that speech shall be free, you will have a hundred lawyers proving that freedom does not mean abuse, nor liberty license, and they will define and define freedom out of existence. Let the guarantee of free speech be in every man's determination to use it, and we shall have no need of paper declarations. 
On the other hand, so long as the people do not care or to exercise their freedom, those who wish to tyrannize will do so. For tyrants are active and ardent and will devote themselves to the name of any number of gods, religious and otherwise, but shackles upon sleeping men. Which, I mean, there's even in just that, those couple paragraphs, there's like so much there. Like, well, you know, and this like, is this is where I got that idea that freedom is a muscle that you must exercise. Yeah. And that, and then if, as I, you know, tying it all together with everything else she said, it's like, as you've become more complacent and you've been chasing money and you, and you've, you've lived this life, this privileged life of, of basically wealth, you know, the wealthiest nation ever to exist ever. We're the wealthiest people to ever exist. We're like the top 5% of the world. Like even our, even the, the impoverished in America are among the top 5% in the world of wealthiest people like it has made us so lazy and complacent that we don't exercise that muscle of freedom and freedom becomes atrophy and then how do you wake that how do you re revive that muscle can you revive it you know yeah no for sure I, and also i got something out of that last line too the uh tyrants are active ardent they will devote themselves to the name of any number of gods, religious and otherwise, put shackles upon sleeping men. And I know uh, it's very common, like the liberty movement or whatever, to get caught up in this like atheism theism thing. Which I mean, I'm, I've been very upfront. I'm an atheist. I don't, but I also don't care. So it's like in this idea. I know we get quibbles over this shit. And sure, there's arguments to be said that maybe religious communities are better. Sure, whatever. Okay. But the point is that the the state will use what it can. Like. You know, you brought yeah. up that we're in the progressive era now, and the forget. I would, I have no problem admitting, even as an atheist, that progressiveness is basically just a uh, non-theistic religion. <laughs> like that's all it is. And uh, you know, they used uh, Christianity and other such auspices before, and now they moved on progressivism. And I wouldn't be surprised if a century from now the government then transitions to some uh, normal religion or, or something like that. Like they just. They, you know, use up their card in the religious era and they moved on to the other, the next thing, which is a progressive religion, you know? Yeah. So. You know, yeah. Yeah. And uh, now well, she starts getting, oh, good. Sorry, you had something to say? Oh, I was just going to say, and, and we've kind of like slid out of the progressive era and now they're kind of like, kind of ping-ponging between progressivism and technocracy. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. which, <laughs> which God do we worship today, you know? Yeah, no, they're moving from like a, social religion to like a social science religion to like a biological science religion or technology technological yeah they're mm -hmm. just moving to wherever they can and you know yeah. they'll, they'll do whatever works and now they go she starts going to like what to do about this and she kind of starts laying out the problem uh you know like is it possible to stir men from their difference we have said that the spirit of liberty was nurtured by colonial life she's kind of getting at that like the reason why they had such a strong feeling for liberty was because of their, you know, their being so independent and being in rural areas, the agrarian lifestyle, essentially. And she kind of goes into, she kind of lays out here how we're kind of fucked in this part. But then at some point she goes, um, let me see. Says, I am so well satisfied that the mass of mankind prefer material possessions to liberty, but I have no hope they will ever by means of intellectual or moral stirrings merely throw off the yoke of, the yoke of oppression fastened on them by the present economic system to institute free societies. And here's the hook. My only hope is the blind development of the economic system and political oppression itself, which is to, she kind of then leads into how 
manufacture may be our way out of it. It's kind of to put it in terms of, was it Oppenheimer, I believe, or no, there's someone who said the predation versus production. Essentially, mm-hmm. you know, the state is predation and all else, the economic realm is production. And she's basically being like, production may get us out of this. And she, mm. she puts in the realm of manufacture and kind of the idea of if, you know, to say for put, put it in terms of guns, you know, as 3D printing gets more and more, uh, you know, people buying it, it, it becomes more, it becomes better technology, et cetera. The whole idea of, you know, being able to infringe on, upon gun rights becomes a joke. Cause it's like, dude, I can mm. just fucking print it. Like, what are you going to do? Like, and it's kind of the, the mass decentralization of everything. And that's mm. kind of what she's getting at to where, you know, it's so much easier to produce things at your own area, like own place. You, right. you may not have that independent spirit anymore. Manufacturer has, you know, progressed to such a point where it's basically identical to, you know, the uh, old lifestyle, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, I, I got it from Roderick Long. I, I The predation production thing um, I, it's very similar um, kind of idea, but Roderick Long says the libertarian class theory is the parasite class and the productive class. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and see, I think this is one of the things that I don't think she could have seen coming that maybe she probably missed because they hadn't, they hadn't had the, you know, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt hadn't come around, you know, with his, his new deal and all that. But, what they what they did and it it makes me sound like a dick to say it this way but but they sold parasitic living onto the impoverished or onto the working class and so they formed basically they surrounded the middle class with parasites on the top and parasites on the bottom so that the parasite class out outnumbers the the productive class so now by going to a straight democracy, you have the parasites always in power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. But it is one of those things where, like, I guess the production or the production aspect, you could get to the point where it so far exceeds it. It's kind of, it's almost like the race of governments and the people for like ever has been the production versus predation race. And it's, well, as, and- as time goes on, it, it gets almost like exponentially better for the, uh, for the production aspect. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I was going to say, and when you start producing on a local level and you start acting like the pioneers, like the colonials, and you start doing it locally, then you're insulating yourself from that general government, from that federal government, because you were, you're basically saying, I am a, a citizen of my community in which I am, am living. Right. So then you start cutting ties with with corporations and things like that you're not doing business with those people you're only doing business like one of the things i've done here recently in the last couple of years is i've gone to a credit union instead of a bank right so i i only use a local credit union and or i buy as much as i can from local stores and and not shop at big box stores so you become that becomes like your habit and then where you belong. And eventually you'll cut yourselves off from all of those things. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, and, and we're kind of getting to the end here. And she she kind of like then I guess has two little sp- points about essentially national defense and then kind of like non meddling. Uh, and those are kind of what she finished up. It's almost like she was just you know doing some loose ends on this point, you know, because she kind of brings up the idea of like uh, you know to, to regard to the breaking up of the vilest creation of tyranny, the standing army and navy is clear that so long as men desire to fight, they will have armed force in one form or the other. And she's and she kind of goes into the least objectionable form of armed forces that which springs up voluntarily, like the Minutemen of Massachusetts, and disbands as soon as the occasion which called into existence is passed. That the really desirable thing is that all men, not Americans only, should be at peace. Uh, you know, and then she goes, anyone who wants to make war should do it so at their own cost and risk. And uh, this makes me think, because she didn't only do like a paragraph on it, but if you want to go into like national defense, I already covered the David Friedman chapter with uh, Jeremy Kaufman, and we go a lot into that. And I don't think she really, she was just kind of like, you know, addressing it quickly. Well, I think, I think she's actually, I think she's actually doing something else here. And this is what I was, yeah, this is what I was saying earlier, where she's, she's making these predictions that are just spot on. And she Mm -hmm. does that in this paragraph. She says, in our day, we have lived to see this militia declared part of the regular military force of the United States and subject to the same demands as the regulars. Within another generation, we shall probably see its members in the regular pay of the general government. So she was she was actually warning about the potential of a standing army becoming that normal, it, like constant. It's always going to be there. Like all these militias, these people that have volunteered to help out, They've been employed with the regular government. They're working alongside the regular government. It's not going to be long before the before that army expands and just encompasses all these people, and you won't have any more militias. And I think that's really what she was getting at. Is showing she's showing that how the growth of government works. Yeah. No, and then she does go in the last well, not the second to last paragraph. She goes as to the American tradition of non-meddling. Anarchism asks that it be carried down to the individual himself. It demands no jealous barrier of isolation. It knows that such isolation is undesirable and impossible. But it teaches that by all men strictly minding their own business, a fluid society freely adapting itself to mutual needs, wherein all the world shall belong to all men, as much as each has need or desire will result. And it's kind of the ultimate individualism. It's like, yeah, you may interfere here and there, but for the most part, just mind your own shit. <laughs> like, you know, um, and then she tells, and then she tells us. The world we live in. Yeah. She says, and, uh, and then and when modern revolution has thus been carried to the heart of the whole world, if it ever shall be, as I hope it will, then may we hope to see a resurrection of that proud spirit of our fathers, which put the simple dignity of man above the guards of wealth and class, and held to that being American was greater than to be a king. So what what she's getting at here is that. Uh, once this, once the dignity is all drained out of humanity, humanity stands back up, and we're looking at that right now. I mean, we've 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 been staring down that barrel for a while, for a few years now, and it just keeps getting more in our face and more in our face. And we're we're we have to decide. Well, let me put it this way: it's got to be people like you and me doing the things that we're doing that lead this revolution and not people like Antifa or burning things down. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're in this, 
we're in this predicament during we're basically i would say when people look back upon this era they're going to say that was a revolutionary era and it's just about what wins out at this point whether the violence and the tyranny of the left or the liberty and and the freedom that we're we're pushing yeah um uh, because i don't think there's a compromise anymore no uh, no, no. Uh, I want to read the last sentence. Uh, in that day, there shall be neither kings nor Americans, only men over the whole earth, men. And I thought that was a good way to end it uh, with the last paragraph. Now, if you have any other thoughts that we didn't cover, because I know we did skim over a lot, and there's a lot to be said in there. So I don't know if you have anything else that you want to bring up about Walter. Uh, well, let me look. Let me see. We I haven't even touched these things. Um, yeah, no, we'll, we'll go into whatever else other ideas that you thought were interesting to go into. Well, I guess I. Yeah. Mm. yeah, we pretty much touched on everything I had written down here. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's so, still way more in that. I highly suggest. Oh, there, there's there's so much yeah. in there. I just I was trying to like like pull out the things that really like get me you know, tug at my heartstrings and it's really the part where she's talking about the about commerce and the agrarian life and in in the independent communities like that that's really you know what what i what i see as being a solution um i mean a, a lot of people are trying to do do these things online but there's something about that personal connection that that you have with the community of of like-minded people and you're not going to get that in um you're not going to get that online and you're not going to experience that in a city and that's one of the things i've been telling people that that complain about the 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 tyranny and the the violence and the the kind of uh the riots and stuff they see in the cities and uh, what do we do leave like you don't need to be there. You can work remotely. You know, I mean, this is the 21st century. So especially the last two years, you know, everybody's been working remotely. So like you, you could have told your boss, well, I moved. So I'm not never going to be able to come back to the office, you know, which mm -hmm. a lot of people have done. A lot of people left New York city. A lot of people left these cities. So that's, the freedom freedom exists, but you have to go out and you have to find it. And you, like I said, exercise that muscle. You have to exercise that muscle because you, if you just sit around and complain all day, you're not free. Yeah. You know, uh, on your internet point, you brought up that there is definitely utility for that. Let that be a, a tool to use towards it. Now, if you have, you're just fucking off online all the time. Yeah, it's nothing. But now if you're using it to do something or to set up, uh, for example, with my, my agorist business or whatever that I have, and most people who watch my show are aware of it. I utilize the internet for aspects of that. I've met plenty of people. I'm doing this right now through the internet. I've met you. I've oh, met yeah. tons of my friends online. So, but now if it's just if it's just that, you know, then yes, that's not going to work. Um, but yeah, with that, I guess you want to go ahead and uh, drop your plugs. Let know people where let people know where they can find you and such. Yeah, man. Uh, libertarianinstitute.org forward slash year dash zero forward slash. You got to put that second forward slash in there. I don't know what Harley did, but that's how it's set up. Got to make sure you get that second forward slash in there. Um, TommySalmons.com will bring you to my sub stack. Um, I write sometimes there. Most of what I do there is for my paid subscribers, but 
I, I will release articles or short stories or, you know, things there. Um, other than that, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not really doing much of anything else. I'm out in, out in the yard all the time. I'm, yeah, it's, it's I'm either working or I'm working, you know? So, yeah. So. Yeah. Same here, man. Uh, I mean, not to your extent. I, mean, you got, I have two acres. I think it's almost like three, but I, I, I basically two. But, That's uh, good though, man. Work. You got, you got yourself a little buffer zone. So yeah. Yeah. And I have enough room if I need to, I can you know, do some shit on it. Uh, and it's all fenced off and I'm definitely happy. In that. I mean, obviously I'm like, like I'm in a spot where I can piss in my own yard in certain spots of the yard. I want to get to a lifestyle where I can piss anywhere in my yard and not worry about it. <laughs> yeah. my, hey, you know, my wife someday's naked, so we're good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, um, with that, this is No Way Jose you, uh, show. You can find me on YouTube, all the major auto podcatchers, Odyssey as well. Uh, follow me on Twitter at 2020 No Way Jose. And I'm on Getter as well and Facebook and stuff, but I pretty much only use Twitter. Uh, you can, if you want to support me, patreon.com, snowyjose2020. For these Arrogance Handbook episodes, if you guys want, like, start giving me suggestions for lefties. I only have, like, one lefty uh, set up, uh, sort of. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in a little bit of an ANCAP echo chamber, so it would be helpful. Uh, but, yeah, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. I really appreciate you coming on, Tommy. Uh, this is a good one. You were the perfect person for Voltaire. And with that, we are out.